I actually started selling online real estate. Resi probably wasn't for me, it was probably a bit too emotional. It's absolutely cutthroat. You're in your car, I reckon, probably 50% of the time. Probably do 26,000 Ks a year. I'm normally on the phone the whole way into the office. Trying not to get done for holding my phone. Love the transactions, love chasing deals. One deal they did last year, which was I think the, was the biggest ever sale, you know, $100 million sale. Welcome to Inside The Real Job with me, your host, Yenfu Chen. Get ready to explore the world of diverse careers while fascinating stories await. We'll delve into the pros and cons while witnessing ever-evolving industries. Join me as we connect with individuals from all walks of life, unveiling their secrets and navigating the dynamic world of work. Let's embark on this journey into the realm of real jobs. What drew you into the field of commercial real estate and not residential, Ben? Well, funnily enough, Yen, I actually started off in residential. So a bit of background, how I landed in commercial real estate was I actually started selling online real estate for property.com.au. That was my first job sort of while I was at uni. I ended up going part-time, doing my bachelor of business. And the last couple of years, I've always worked pretty much the whole way throughout uni. I thought I'd better get start to get some professional experience rather than just working at Liquorland. Property.com.au, which really a tech company, it had just launched to compete against realestate.com.au. So I ended up selling basically online listing services. I was knocking on doors of real estate and saying, hey, we've got this new platform. We'll give you a free computer if you use it as part of the package and trying to get people to list online instead of just listing their shop front windows. So I started selling to real estate agents. And then around that sort of time, I bought our first house and had a horrendous experience with a residential agent. So I thought someone's got to be able to do this better. I actually got my license or my certificate of registration and started a job actually in Avalon. Back in the day, it was a Genman agent. So for those that don't know, Genman was no auctions, no open house. It was the very old school. Come and sit in the office. I've got a photo book for you. We'll go through the photos. You'll tell me everything you want. We'll sort of work out a wish list. And then based on the 20 properties we've got listed, you'll jump in my car and we'll actually do a tour of the market. So I worked in first national real estate in Avalon for about 18 months. I found a bit of a niche in residential with selling units. Back in the day, you could buy a two-bedroom unit for six, dollars $700,000. And then ended up getting laid off. I struggled when you're in your early 20s. You're dealing with baby boomers. The competitors had kids at the local schools and they had network. I grew up in Newport, had no network in Avalon. The agents in their 40s and 50s that had connections locally were getting a lot more business. And, oh, look, I'm going to give it to him because he's a mate or our kids playing the same soccer team together. So I sort of did a bit of soul searching sort of thinking resi probably wasn't for me it was probably a bit too emotional it's absolutely cutthroat and it's all about the listing anyone can run around with a buyer and do a deal with a buyer it's all about bringing that listing on so without the listing you're basically not guaranteed any revenue so found a job actually in the paper with a small commercial agency in north sydney called harlow property consultants worked with them for about 18 months and that was how i got my feet into commercial real estate and then since then, found my niche. I loved it. Love the transactions. Love chasing deals. And uh, here I am today, so 20 years on in, in corporate real estate. Nice. And what other aspects is different, commercial versus residential? Mm. It's more business versus that emotional side with your mums and dads? Yeah. So and that's what I found. So even when we look at property, you say, I want a view, I want four bedrooms, I want two bathrooms. Quite often in residential, you get someone, right, this has got everything you want. And then the husband says, oh, but doesn't feel right. And commercial industrial that I do today, it's you pretty much take a wish list. What, what size trucks, what size clearance, how many deliveries you get a day, do you get containers, are you B2B, are you B2C? Just understanding sort of how the business works, how many people staff in the office, how many work from home, how many, really just taking a, a, a really good brief and then you can do a short list of properties, show them those properties. And if you've got something that meets the brief, if plus the budget, generally you'll land a deal. Whereas in resi, you can run around with buyers for six or eight months. 
don't have to move. There's no lease expiry. They haven't got 10 containers on the water that they need to put in a warehouse somewhere. There's no urgency. Whereas in commercial real estate, it's very much more financial market driven. So it's it's all numbers. It's more investment. It's more a banking sort of focus rather than purely just a emotional, very emotional actually. And generally most decisions in our business, it's all numbers. I've got a budget of X. If you can get that budget, we can do a deal. If not, we move on, we look for something else. So there's a little bit of motion, but definitely nothing like residential. Yeah, gotcha. And can you maybe walk us through an actual what a day looks like? My day starts, you know, I'm not that much of an early riser. Normally in the office by 8, 8.30. Normally I like to get try and do the hard things first. I try not to procrastinate. I've learned if you procrastinate, you waste emotional energy on thinking about the hard calls you need to make. So I try and do those hard calls early on in the morning. I'm normally on the phone the whole way into the office, just getting headspace right for the day. I find in the business, you've got to be motivated. You can't go into the office feeling half full. You need to be 110% to, to perform well. So my morning is sort of getting my headspace right. And then by the time we're three of us, we've got three of us in our business in Macquarie Park. By the time we're in, you're sort of, you're buzzing. You normally another coffee by the time you get into the office, the second coffee for the day. We obviously have structured appointments with clients, which are fortnightly catch-ups. We're doing pitches. So it is all over the shop, but it's we do have a bit of structure around reporting. And obviously I, I take more uh, operations sort of role than my day. Normally that's after hours because it's non-money producing sort of time. But yeah, my day would consist of you know, inspections, canvassing, mentoring a young guy that works for us, meeting clients face-to-face. And I used to be very inflexible. What I've learned for doing this job, you need to be absolutely flexible. So if you're very structured and an inquiry might come through and they might say, I've just seen this property, I'm available in an hour to inspect it. Are you available? And if you qualify them and it seems like it's the right sort of property for them, if you don't inspect the property with them, another agent will. So you need to drop everything and run out there. Only if it sort of ticks the boxes for what they're looking for. So you need really, really flexible, agile, and look, what hours do we work to? Like sometimes five, sometimes six, you do what you got to do. We don't work from home. That's one of the things we've sort of made a conscious decision. If you, if you want to have the energy within the office, all three of you need to be there. And same with our young guy, Chris, who's only been with us 18 months and is absolutely smashing it. It's in the office every day. If we're not working from home, it makes sense because as you said, you got to be really adaptable. Within half an hour, you might have to travel somewhere to show someone a, a property. That's the thing in our business. It's tricky. You try and coordinate your day that you're not wasting time. So... Obviously, it's your own petrol to run between appointments. If someone says, I want to see something in French as far as at midday, for example, we're based in Macquarie Park, trying to do inspections close to home on the way in or the way home. Mm-hmm. Worst case, we'll run out midday, but only if we can't do it in the morning or afternoon. We do a lot of driving, probably do 26,000 Ks a year, just appointments and running around. And it is a, a job that you're in your car, I reckon, probably 50% of the time. Um, and is that the other 50% or 40% you're on the phone? Uh, most of it's on the phone. Trying not to get done for holding my phone. <laughs> but and technology these days is great. So you can you can work anywhere, but we do try to go to the office just because of to keep the culture alive and yeah, it's just the cross flow of information too. That always helps. Yeah. You mentioned that you're always talking, facing people. So how do you get your work? That point you made when you're in real estate, when you were just starting off and the people that you were competing or the other agencies that you were competing with already had a build-up of network because they lived in the area, their kids went to the local school. And now, that, how do you get your work? Do you actually have to be proactive or is it because you've built such a great brand as an individual and as a business? Yeah, so it, it's a good question. Look, it's a bit of residential that sort of rubbed off on me. But funnily enough, both Arland and I, who's my business partner, we both started off in residential. My stint there was very short, but you hear a lot of the agents today, you want to be an attraction business and very much that is our philosophy. Look, you still got a canvas, you still got a cold call and we do canvas, we do cold call. You hear market rumors, something's happening and you'll pick up the phone, work out who to speak to and call them. But a lot of it's hopefully we've 
done a good job servicing our clients. And, and generally in commercial, I think there's a lot more loyalty than in residential. So in residential, you might buy a house from LJ Hookers and you might go and sell through McGrath just because you bought your future house through McGrath. I think there's a lot more loyalty as long as you service your clients. So you've got to stay in your client's face. You need to constantly give them market information, calling them, seeing what they're up to. Obviously, a lot of these clients are multinational institutions, they're REITs, they've got offshore investors, they're raising capital. Things are changing on a daily basis, both locally and globally. So it's just a matter of staying up to date. In our business, you snooze, you lose. If you fall asleep at the wheel, things happen under you. Basically, will happen overnight. Geez, I just spoke to you yesterday, but what's happened from this week to the next week? It's, oh, well, this person came to us and offered this opportunity, so we decided to run with it. You know what I mean? So you really need to stay in client's face. And that's one of the things we struggle with apart from picking up the phone is like some sort of direct, uh, whether it's a direct marketing piece going to clients, everyone gets 80, 100 emails a day. So you've got to somehow stay and social media is probably a good way to, to stay in their face. Most corporates are on LinkedIn and that's probably where they see a lot of what's going on, what's coming up for sale, what's being leased and seeing the activity. So you somehow got to stay present front of mind for them. So they're the first person they pick up the phone to. Yeah, right. Yeah. And when you say clients, can we just deep dive into that? So you've got clients that own all the different commercial properties, and then you've got clients that buy these or use these for their companies, like lease them out. So we've got a couple of different client bases. So our main clients, I would say a combination of high net worth privates. So some of them old family money, some of them self-made portfolios that build up over the years. We've got syndicates. So you or I could go and invest in a syndicate. There'll be someone running that syndicate. Obviously, we won't deal directly with those investors. We'll deal with the head of the syndicate. And then most of our client instos or what we REITs. So most of the bigger sort of properties in Sydney are owned by REIT. They could be a listed REIT. They could be like a wholesale REIT. So Corey Goodman or Goodman, Goodman International, whatever you want to call them, AMP Capital, who have now exited sort of the property side of things, Dexas. They're all our clients, as well as high net worth. If you look at specifically in Macquarie Park, most of the buildings are owned by REITs. On the beaches, a little bit less institution sort of presence, but a lot more privates. So high net worths that have that might own a state on the beaches, a state in South Sydney, a state in Western Sydney. Um, and they're good clients to have. Generally, they're very loyal. Where REITs, there's a lot of loyalty to REITs. Some are more, whoever brings them the last deal, they'll be loyal to. So it's just that balancing act of, look, you've got to service them all. They're all your clients. They're all going to pay you a fee eventually. So you just got to make sure you stay in front of all of them. It's tough because there's a lot of clients out there. <laughs> so you really got to pick your segment you're focusing on and, and try and stay in their face. And how do you pick the segment? That's a good one. So I started off in Fajalos was really sort of the low and offshore industrial markets. So back in the day, it was like, right, you really want to own a patch. So I cut my teeth in Chatswood and Artarman. So East Roseville, where so off Eastern Valley Way there and Artarman, traditionally it's all been panel beaters and smash repairers and, and obviously got the hospital there. So a lot of medical sort of base industries that want to be around the hospital. So that's where I cut my teeth. Then a bit of Lane Cove, which is sort of like an offshoot of, if you can't find generally what you want in Chatswood, Artama and Lane Cove, sort of the next best. So generally you want to try and control a patch and be really good at that patch, be an expert. So drive through Chatswood and all you're seeing is one commercial signboards everywhere. That's ideally what you want to, what you want to do. So I think from our roots in those sort of markets, Generally, we've been mainly an industrial agency, but we are, we're based in Macquarie Park. We, we've always done deals in Macquarie Park, which is more an office park. French's Forest has been a, a market I've operated in for sort of 15, 16 years. So we are also in that business park space, all the, the bigger office buildings, large floor plates. So yeah, I suppose our business, our core business is industrial office parks. We don't do retail and, and we're sales and leasing. So I think you need to be able to do both. You might lease something to someone one day, they want to buy the next. 
a lot of the big agencies pigeonhole you into you're either sales or you're, you're the sales or you're leasing. You can't do both. And they have specialists just for cap trans, as they call it, or for sales. Our belief is, given we're only a headcount of three, you need to be both. And we've got a good a good mixture of skill sets. My business partners come from purely a cap trans sort of background. Well, I've been probably been predominantly leasing. So I think we complement each other well. A good there. mix. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned earlier about the market trends and the changes. How do you keep up to date with that? Is there like a place that you go to or networks that you do, associations, or do you just read the paper a lot? Look, so there's a whole lot of industry. There's REI, but that's probably more residential focused. Um, So the Real Estate Institute in New South Wales. Um, Most of our stuff, to be honest, is online. So there's so much information online through, whether it's through AFR, through the Australian, through through LinkedIn, you've got to be present on LinkedIn. You've got to be constantly looking at LinkedIn for trends, what's selling for what. It's, it's an easy way to start to date with what's going on in the market. Obviously, a lot of the majors have research houses or they have a research department. They put out reports quarterly. The Australian Property Industry or API also puts out trends on, on the vacancy rates, the net absorption, um, supply coming online. So there's a lot of data to consume. You really just got to stay on top of it. And we, we do our own tracking of a couple of markets, a couple of markets that can delve down and manageable to actually understand vacancy rates, tracking net rents, tracking incentives, obviously tracking big moves in each market too, which is setting new new benchmarks for rents and incentives. So you really just got to be constantly looking at social media, keeping you to the grounds. And, and also you get a lot of that from clients. So you'll speak to a client, oh, we, we've heard you've just sold X building. And then before you know it, oh, yeah, we sold this to this person, they bought it for this. And, and of course, there's an opportunity, there's a new owner. You try and reach out to the new owner and turn it into something, you know what I mean? See if you can assist them on if they've got a leasing campaign. But it's really just staying in touch with industry peers and clients and keeping you to the ground. It's a really fast-paced environment. So unless you are speaking to people, you, you lose track of what's, what's happening in the market. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And while we are on the subject of keeping up to date with your knowledge and learning, can you maybe just touch on like, like what license do you need to do what you do? or what you yeah. know, studies, and do you have to keep up with any accreditation or anything? You, you do. So um, so you basically need, so back in the day, there was either a, you just had a certificate or you're a licensee. They've now changed, re, restructured all the certification. So now you need to hold, so the entry level is a certificate of registration. I think they've rebranded it, but you can only hold that for a certain amount of time. Whereas previously you could be a certificate, you could just hold a certificate of registration and work forever. Now you need to hold a certificate and you've got to be working towards a class two license. So, and then there's a class one license. So class one license is the licensee in charge, could be the licensee in charge of, a, of an office. And then class two is what I am. And you do need to do CPD points. So I couldn't own a real estate office being class two agent. You need to be a class one to be the licensee, but I can, you know, I can transact and do everything else. I can't run a trust account. You need to be class one. My business partner is class one, so I have no need to have a class one license. The CPD points, most of it's linked more to, to residential. All your CPD courses, there's not many companies that specialize in commercial, but there are some there are some groups starting to focus purely on commercial and what we come up with, you know, misquoting areas and how you get your advice from clients and need everything in writing and them to approve everything so you're not guiding incorrectly. Yeah, compli- look, it's a lot of it, to be honest, is common sense. A lot of the CBD stuff is, is you know, just think, put it, yourself in the other shoes. If you misguided someone, what's going to happen? You're going to get sued. So you've got to be really careful. Okay. Based on what we've spoken about so far, I think the standout is dealing with people all the time, right? Whether it's on the phone or face-to-face. Is that a skill that you just naturally had or, did, again, being in real estate initially help you build that? 
Yeah, I've always been, it's funny, I've always got, you go into a party or something, you don't know anyone, I've always been able just to join a group and start a conversation somehow. So I think the biggest making connections with people, I can talk about anything and everything. Quite often I'm told to shut up, <laughs> talk less. But I think you, know, you just got to find that commonality. And and sometimes, and a lot of the time it is, you're, in, you're out of your comfort zone reaching out to new people that you've never spoken to before, but you, you always find some commonality, whether it's where you grew up, whether it's where you've worked, whether it's you can talk about a deal, you can talk about what they did on the weekend to get the conversation flowing, where the kids go to school, what sports the kids play. There's always something you can connect with. Talk about the, the holiday where they went overseas and you might have been somewhere similar. Like there's always some commonality. You've got to find that commonality to build a relationship. And especially it's hard these days and, and probably the hardest period we had was during COVID, especially if you're trying to build new relationships because it's hard to build a relationship over teams. Even over the phone, you need that warmth. You need to eyeball people. Quite often, Teams meetings, awkward. There's silence. You don't know who to talk or you're talking over the top of each other. But I've never found it hard building relationships with people. It's just it's reaching out to them and making that first connection. When you made a connection, it's normally easy. Yeah, nice. And based on skills, A, we talked about keeping up with trends, to the people skills. What other important skills is That's required a- in your role? Yeah, so if I, and then probably the when I reflect from residential to commercial space I'm in today, I think the biggest learning curve I've ever had is it's an absolute emotional roller coaster, commercial real estate. Any real estate is. So you're only as good as your last deal. So it sounds yeah. like something from a movie, but yeah, yeah. it's, so, <laughs> it's, it's true. So, it's so true. It's so true. So, and you ride waves. So, especially when you start out, you might have one deal on the go at a time and if that one deal doesn't happen you've got all your eggs in one basket and that deal falls over you sort of had in your back of your head i've got this deal it's a twenty thousand dollar fee i'm going to do this deal this is going to be a great month and that deal falls over so emotions you really need to control your emotions that's probably one of the biggest look and it takes time like i was i'd go into work one day on top of the moon for the moon and then the next day I'd be like, i can't believe that deal fell over i thought i had this month stitched up if you can conquer that and ride the waves, I think simply you just need more eggs in your basket, more, more in the pipeline, basically, and then eventually will drop out. The deals will drop. That's probably the hardest thing to conquer, especially when you're young, entering a very competitive market where you've got people that relationships go back 20, 30 years for some operators. It's very hard for someone young to come and crack it. Our young guy, Chris, doing extremely well. Once again, he's learned how to build relationships and we're teaching him do not bank on one deal. You need to have lots of deals. Don't just spend all your time and energy on one deal. Have that one deal going, put that to the side, service it, make sure it's progressing, but get more in the pipeline. You can't afford just to be banking on a a monster fee because that drops and you're going to go to ground for a couple of days going, what do I do? How do I recover it? How do I find something else? That is the hardest. That is the biggest skill. Look, there's a whole lot for real estate. Like negotiation is a big part of it. And look, quite often there's someone that misses out. You might have two parties wanting, chasing something. I think to be in the business long-term, you need to build trust. Trust, gotta be transparent with people. You gotta tell it how it is. You can't shaft people. You've gotta, cause you, you, they're not gonna deal with you again. You just gotta be absolutely transparent in all your dealings and be honest, I think. Cause if you're not honest, you get caught out. That's probably some of the key mottos we live by. And and a client, someone who's a tenant today might be an owner tomorrow, might be a client tomorrow. You never wanna burn a bridge. That's my other 
I think a big philosophy I've always learned you know, live by. You, you burn one person, they're going to go and tell four or five, this guy's an absolute dickhead. Don't deal with him. And, and that's going to that's really going to create issues. There are some people in our industry who've got bad names and, and and clients will just, they'll be on the blacklist. They won't will not speak to them. So you've got to be really careful not to burn a bridge. And it's hard at times because sometimes you want to let loose at a client that you feel like you're being shafted on a fee or something. But sometimes you just got to be a bit diplomatic and take a deep breath and have a think about yeah. it and then and then re-engage yeah. yeah and you mentioned uh way early in the conversation it's quite a cutthroat industry and that's across residential and commercial yeah it's cutthroat because it's sales like it's all um it's transactional and the fees at play residential three million dollar house you might get a 60 grand fee in commercial colleague did a large deal last year i think he'd worked on it for 18 months it was i think the biggest deal he's ever done but 18 months worth of work to, for one fee you know it was a sizable fee it's probably the biggest he's ever written i think that's why it's so cutthroat at any one time the longer that drags on the risk of it not happening is greater so and a lot of our deals you know residential generally your typical property these days is four weeks auction campaign for sale sign goes up the street gets peppered with brochures six open houses and the property sold at auction or thereafter our business is long long term so most some of our lease listings some things get leased very quickly but a lot of it, they're campaigns that, that drag on for quite some time. You might have a building that's 4,000 metres. You can't subdivide it. You've got to find a 4,000 metre tenant who's going to get pay for every square metre of that space. The other part of being cutthroat as an industry is you're on a salary. You have a multiplier, especially in the large agencies. So there are optics externally. You're reporting up. The local business reporting up to Asia Pack. If you're not hitting your multipliers, you've only got a very short window to survive in that industry. Sure, you've got the first 12 months, you've probably got a bit of leeway because you're new to the business, but after that, you're expected to hit your targets. So it is very cutthroat. And every year the targets are stretched. That's in corporate world, in corporate major multinational sort of agency. But I suppose with the small agency, look, we don't do a deal, we don't eat. So yeah. I think it's as simple with a, there's only three of us, we don't pay ourselves a salary, the two principals, myself and Ireland. We don't do a lease deal, sales deal. We we don't take a cent home that month. Mm. Um, it's as simple as that. Obviously we've got a, a younger guy does get a salary, but that's how cutthroat it is. So you've got your pressure on yourself to perform. Everyone's got obligations, mortgages and, and aspirations of where they want to be. So yeah, it's really cutthroat, but that sort of motivates you at the same time. So you've got to get out of bed, you've got to get fired up and you, you've got to focus. And yeah, some days, Mondays, you come in with a bit of Monday-itis, but by the afternoon, you'll be humming. We well, got to do something to get to get back in that that mindset. Yeah, great. And you talked about you got to have good negotiation skills. Yes. Is that again just something you came over time, or is it like the industries provide what you mentioned mentorship and or particular courses you go on to build sales skills? And that's where I probably reflect back to where I started in real estate. So I, I still to this day think the best agents have come from residential background residential is the ultimate training ground for skills and negotiation and i think look i look back and i suppose i was quite um had my nose out of joint when i got laid off from that from first national back in early 2000s but oh, why was i was doing deals so why did i get made redundant but i look back and to be honest it was the best training ground i could have had the genman system was basically you don't just sign up for a job and here's your job here's a desk here's a phone book go for it it was you had to pass a basically a German training course before you actually got the job, So, which was absolutely stringent. You had to be able to – there was a whole lot of role plays, there were scripts and dialogues. You knew the scripts and dialogues off by heart, So, which I think was a bit too robotic, and it doesn't suit everyone. Like I'm, I've never been a scripted person. Like you know what to say. You need to come across natural, not like a robot. But you need to – I think those foundations have really helped in shaping 
you as an agent. And it, I suppose residential gave you a bit of courage too. Like you hadn't done residential, I would have been, it would have been daunting picking up the phone and calling someone for the first time I'd never spoken to. But in residential, you learn that's what you got to do. You get a reverse phone book, one to a hundred in whatever street you're in, and you dial everyone through that street saying, hey, I've just sold the property around the corner. You've got a great result. Got any plans for the next you know, couple of years? But yeah, look, I think the, the, the resi upbringing absolutely shaped, and it gives you, it gives you no fear really. Like it's, and the negotiation side of it, so there was negotiation sort of was one part of that that Gemman framework and everything. So, and that's the thing with the Gemman thing. It was always, everything was by negotiation. There was none of this auction, stand back and let the auctioneer call an auction. That's probably the easy way to sell these days, to tell you the truth. It's it's really just a process. And I think an auction, if you do the process well, you get the right outcome. I think with the negotiation, you try and control the process, but it's it goes all, go any which way. So yeah, absolutely nailing your skills in negotiation and having a framework, having a negotiation framework, I think really helps. Looking in corporate real estate, it's you're still negotiating deals, but you sort of have a bit of a guidance as to where an owner is going to go to. They've got budgets that have been approved. It's a little bit more transparent than when at residential, it's really pulling on heartstrings. Look, you sure you want to miss out for 20 grand? You know what I mean? Like the next five years, 20 grand over five years is nothing. You're really, you're really pushing. But in business, they couldn't give a shit. No, it doesn't make sense. Unless I can get this, I'm not going to do the deal. A lot of the laws of businesses are like that. So with residentials, you really got to learn to negotiate because especially when you're not auctioning and letting the auctioneer close the deal for you. Come with all that negotiation skills that you would have got more rejections than success, I'd say. And again, that resilience, is that something you just get used to? Yeah, the resilience definitely comes with experience. The resilience when you first start out is you're up and down. Your headspace is it really plays with the headspace and you've got to be really headstrong. I think these days, the way I look at it, if you've got enough going on, if one deal falls over, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it might be a big deal, might be a small deal, but you know there's something else around the corner. So from my perspective these days, I don't get too bogged down. A deal falls over, yeah, look, you know, that was, I put a lot of effort into that. I want to get a result for the amount of time I put in, but um, yeah, I want to get a result for the client too. Like you're there to deliver results for clients. You're not there to, and, and obviously make fees and find, put tenants into new homes, their business. But you've just got to have a lot going on and your resilience, it ends up, these days it's water off a duck's back. The hardest thing I think in our business is you try and act honestly with everyone with integrity and when you just get told porkies from people, that's the worst when people lie to you, tell you one thing and, and do something totally different. But yeah, I think over time, look, the longer you're in it, if, you, if, you're, a new, if you're a new starter, I think you just can't focus on the money. You've got to focus on what you're actually, you're helping people move. When people start focusing on the money, counting their pennies before the deals actually drop, that's when it turns into an absolute roller coaster. Yeah, that's a good tip. Mm. What aspects of the job that, you might not like doing because we usually have things that we don't like in a job is there any in your space having hard conversations with people is probably what i find the toughest not with vendors i'm happy to tell a vendor you know you're priced at x your competitors at y we need to move on this we need to you know they're easy conversations the hard conversations are probably with with colleagues with staff previous roles with cbre and jll it was having those conversations internally and, and the problem is because everyone's, there's so much money involved, it, everyone's out there to, to make commission. You think you're entitled to X and then someone thinks you're entitled to Y. I think having those hard conversations very early on in a deal is probably the hardest thing I struggle with, especially with the majors. Like, you know, you might do all the work and then there's a few hands come out for a part of a fee, which you didn't expect or vice versa. And some hard conversations, telling someone you missed out on something, that's not easy. I'm sorry, there's someone else that's prepared to pay more. The owners decided to proceed with them for these reasons. 
someone's really upset because they really wanted that property. So letting them off, there's no such thing as letting them off lightly, but trying to then provide another solution so they don't throw their toys out of the cot and hate you because you've shafted them. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, we do what our clients, we're instructed by our clients. So we try and let them make the decisions. We'll give them advice. We might run an EOI campaign, expressions of interest and two buyers at the same number. And the vendor thinks one's going to perform. The other one, they don't know. There's no track record. And they decide one over the other. And that, that's a hard conversation. Look, I'm sorry, you're not going to buy this. And they've got approvals and spent a heap of money on DD. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's not, not an easy. Those sort of things I find the most challenging. Yeah. Okay. I assume it must be a real high once you sign a contract that's got a 10-year lease or you sell a property. Do you have like one success story that you can share with us that you always reflect back to? Maybe when there's times that you might have had two deals that dropped off. Do you go back to a moment where you're like, no, nah, I can still do this because I had such a good success in that one yeah. one moment? Look, I think my, my business partner, there's one deal they did last year, which was, I think, the, both of us was the biggest ever sale, you know, $100 million sale off market, yeah, which right. is which is always, it, it's sort of a once in a lifetime deal if you're not in that Captran space, the institutional level full time. But that was a roller coaster. That was like a 12 month roller coaster, to tell you the truth. So it's the highs and lows, and the deal's finally done. You're like, I can't believe that really happened. You know what I mean? So I don't have one deal I reflect on. I think you get the most satisfaction out of the business when you, you move someone into a new premises and you really see that business thrive. That's what really does it for me. You help them grow their business, you help them move into better space. Um, and they're happy for being there, not moving, oh, the roof's leaking, it's a nightmare, your landlord's a nightmare. That's probably what I get the most thrill out of. And I do try and do check-ins with, with tenants I place in the space. It's not a deal done, set and forget, send your invoice out and forget about the tenant. Tenants could come a client of yours or a prospect of yours again down the track at the lease expiry. So you've got to stay in touch with them. You've got to try and sort out any issues, even post. There might be six months into a lease and you just do a, hey, how's it all going? Oh, I need more space about growing this. We're just acquired a business. Great. You know, can we help you put you somewhere else? Where do you want to go? What I've learned is you've got to service both your clients, the owners, plus also the tenants. got to stay in contact. It's nice when you can help a business and you, you keep a relationship with that tenant, I suppose, really floats my boat, if you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, gotcha. When you say great story of getting someone in the property that they really want so they can grow their own mm. business, do you help them set it up? Do you have tradespeople to make yeah. sure that they're all happy or is that just something that they do on their own? Yeah, so we, like over the years, we do have a network of, of fit out people, of, of certifiers, of like private certifiers, of, of mortgage brokers, of and, and we do, and they're, and probably they're more friends that we refer into. I've got one, one mate of mine, we've known each other for 18 years. There's just trust there. It's... You want, and I only want to refer to people that are going to make you look good. They're not going to make you look good. And I've, I've referred in a couple of businesses and they've done a really bad job or the tenants come back and said their price was 30% more than someone else. And I won't refer them again because the whole point of referring is they help a deal happen and they make you look good. And yes, everyone benefits. So uh, we do have a pretty good network we deal with. And we're always looking at how that network can improve and who, who else can add to that network. Look, obviously we get, there's a lot of fit out companies out there chasing fit out work. And I think over the time one of them's another one's done a whole lot of work for my father did a really good job and i'll always use him because you can trust him the trust is is the biggest thing so you're getting feedback on tenants telling them one thing hopefully they're telling us the same thing so that also is why we're referring people we can trust that'll help you get the deal done and everyone benefits okay and the way you're dealing with people over the last 20 odd years mm. relationship building daily checks in or every couple of months do you think that's going to change in the future like is there anything that's company in your industry that's going to threaten those kind of aspects or the roles that people are in in general funny you say that so the biggest trend at the moment is work from home so covid created if you look at 
statistics of a lot of the majors. It's sort of Monday and Friday are traditionally the days people work from home. So I think the new norm today is is three and two, three days in the office, two days at home. I know the productivity's down. It's probably the worst it's ever been. Is that going to change? I know most employers are wanting people to come back to the office. Multiple reasons. A, we've got this office space that no one's using. Collaboration, efficiencies, productivity. That's probably been the biggest thing that's impacted our industry in the last well, since I've been in it, um, apart from the cyclical, you know, economic factors that we're at a, what's a cash rate at 4.7%, that obviously impacts it greatly as a reset capital market side of things. I think where the work from home piece is going to go, I actually think we'll move to four day working weeks. I reckon people will start to come back to the office and say, right, you can have one day, you're efficient for the four days, you can work, you can have one day off. I think that's why I'll end up. I just can't see this working from home. A lot of people have made massive lifestyle decisions on the back of it and move mm. regional and so forth. Maybe if you're in the tech space, maybe that will work. Programming, you don't need to. You can have a team screen on all day. But that's probably the biggest change I see that is really the vacancy rates in the office space in CBD markets are ridiculous because of work from home. And, and business is scratching the head. How much space do we need? We don't know. When's this going to change? When's it going to go from the eight and two, oh, sorry, you know, the, the three and two to everyone back in the office? And, the, and business is struggling to plan for that, what the next office looks like. That's the biggest challenge we've had to our industry. The other large one at the moment is, you know, the cost of real estate, the cost of living, the transport is through the roof at the moment. And a lot of, uh, yeah, we're seeing a few tenants feel the, feel the pinch. Rents have been huge growth over the last handful of years. Is that going to stop? I think it has to. A lot of industrial real estate is starting to get unaffordable for a lot of tenants. Basically, got to pass on those increased costs to customers, or they've got to find space that's more, be more efficient in their use of space. So it's an interesting time in the market. Like we are going through a bit of a transition, and all this is since COVID. So since COVID, a lot of businesses are asking for less space. So industrial-wise, it's all more space. So with the supply chain issues out of China and a lot of the ports and manufacturers being shut down, everyone during COVID surprisingly wanted more space. They wanted to future-proof supply chain kinks. So, And we're starting to see that normalise again now. These companies have taken more space. I'm seeing quite a few that we've leased more, that might have grown 30% and now going, well, we didn't really need that space. Supply chains are just-in-time inventory. Cost of real estate's gone up 25, 30% since COVID. We don't need the space. We'll operate with less space and just and now just in time because we can't see COVID coming back for you know, something similar, a pandemic for the next 100 years. So it's, it's returning more to normality. So from an office perspective, your typical office tenant would sign a five-year lease is probably average for a larger corporate, probably maybe longer. Five to seven might be average. If you're a small business, maybe three years. But what we're finding at the moment, so A, what's the size, what's the footprint we need? How many people do we need to house? And, and a lot of that's unknown because who's going to be working from the office today in two years and three years? We still don't, a lot of the businesses don't know. That's one of the major issues. Some other issues with planning, I think, for businesses is a lot of businesses are also looking flight to quality with so much vacancy and they might go and move to a CBD location. They might have been in the sub in the burbs that want to attract better labour. Obviously, we've still got an employment rate that's extremely tight. That starts to blow out. People might return to the office. Yeah, so do you feel like people now, you know, your other comment was... Space. Yeah. Space yeah. and coming back to four days a week. Because yeah. I assume there's companies now got their lease up and they renew. Yeah. So one of the biggest challenges I think today, and this is all since COVID, is construction costs. From an operational perspective for a business, so say they've got a lease expiring today and they're in 2,000 metres, their staff are working from home a couple of days a week, they could probably shrink that. You know, say they're in 1,000, they could probably shrink it down to 700. The biggest challenge everyone has, fit-out costs have gone through the roof. Very, very ballpark. Most contractors are quoting fit-out. You wouldn't get a fit-out in an A-grade, B-grade building under $1,000 a metre. And that's probably low, probably like $1,100, $1,200 a metre for a new fit-out. So that's sort of driving 
tenant's commitment. So obviously every office deal, there's incentive. The landlord's giving up some sort of rent-free period or contribution to fit out. Businesses at the moment don't want to raise capital internally. They don't want to go knocking on, go to corporate and say, hey, I need a million dollars to do this fit out. So I'd say 90% of the deals, the fit out's getting funded by the landlords. The lease terms are getting linked back to what money do we need to do this fit out? And the lease terms are getting linked back to, right, if we need $2 million, we might be able to get a half a million dollars signed off offshore, but we need the 15, 1.5 from the deal. So my colleagues just done a sizable deal in St. Leonard's. It was purely, they couldn't go to corporate going, I need a million dollars for a fit out. Corporate just go, no. So that's a challenge at the moment. And the fit outs, they're not going backwards, the price. And it's it's not just build costs, it's compliance. I've heard a few builders say New South Wales is the one of the most highly regulated as far as from a building perspective. The CDC, the compliance, the fire solutions, the the HVAC, all these costs just come on top, get loaded onto doing a fit out, which makes it extremely expensive. So that's there's two things that that does. It makes tenants, when they do do a new fit out, and if they have a full make good on that, makes them very sticky. So they're they're not going to go anywhere because they've just invested so much. They're not going to want to do it all again in five years' time. And the other is what we were seeing when tenants had expiries. This is office tenants post-COVID. It was, we really don't know where our business is going. Let's just, what we call, kick the can down the road. So we're, we've just come off a five-year lease. We don't know what our footprint's going to look like. We don't know what our headcount in the office is going to look like. Hey, Mr. Landlord, can we do a two-year extension? Which, generally speaking, landlords would be, no way, it's five years or see you later. We want to be at our lease expiry profile. But lately, landlords, because the where the vacancy rates are sitting, happy to kick the can down the road. A couple mm-hmm. of years, bit of an uplift in rent. The business gets a bit of surety and gives them two years to decide what the new office looks like and defers that relocation cost. So yeah, it's interesting times. Like it's it's resettling slowly, but I still a long way to go. And then, and of course, this co-working's come out too, which people are going, well, let's just be flexible. Let's just go to a, you know, I was going to say a WeWork, but you know more. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. let's just go to something like, yeah, there's so many cool co-working space in the city, there which is very scalable. And you might have a core office somewhere and use that for your flex space until you understand what your new footprint looks like. Yeah, interesting times. Mm. And that's from an industry perspective, but what about your role? Do you feel like someone that's going to come in starting now, like your young guy, Chris, or someone that's about to come in finishing high school next couple of years, do you feel like the role itself is going to change or do you feel like the fundamentals there is all about that whole trust, build that relationship? Look, it's funny you say that because there are a few agents that work remotely. So during COVID have taken off overseas and wow. still write big figures living in the States or wherever, okay. whatever else. Is um, that because they've built a pool of clients perhaps? Yeah, correct. Yeah. I don't think that's sustainable personally. Yeah, people want to deal with people they get on with. But you need to, it's a bit like the Teams meetings. Like great to have the odd Teams meeting, but there's nothing like a face-to-face catch up with people. Just what it uncovers during a face-to-face catch up is way more than what you get over a team's a very sort of stunted conversation that talking over the top of each other and you don't know when the other person's going to talk you can't see their mannerisms yeah so it's look i, I can't see the agent being replaced i, I think definitely technology is going to help a lot of the logistics groups bit large logistics groups have all sorts of software that determine where they should be based because of cost of transport and whatever else but i definitely think more technology is going to come in with there's a whole lot of robotics coming into automated warehousing in australia generally we're a small market compared to us and in Europe, but the robotics is coming in. Definitely the way large organisations make locational decisions and commitment decisions to logistics is definitely changing. In my particular business and our space, we're not seeing that as much on the North Shore. Like the North Shore is very landlocked. There's no more industrial land. There's a lot of old product in our market. I think I think inventory management is probably going to, people are going to start to get smarter with inventory management, what they're holding, given the cost of real estate. They're going to have to. Rents are, rents are $300 a metre gross now for industrial on the North Shore. On average, probably higher. It depends on where you are. The closer to the city, the closer to the major 
arterials they're higher but and that's a massive cost so i can see maybe people on the stock more just in time coming back into play when they're certainly on freight look i don't think the agent's going to be replaced i really don't i still think computers can't negotiate deals you know what i mean yeah for sure no two deals are the same like they're all there's all you might have a standard what we call heads of agreement which we use but there's always special conditions there's always i want the racking to stay or i want to buy that racking or I don't want this removed, but I want that. There's all these idiosyncrasies of every single deal. So no two deals are the same. You need that personal touch to to bring that to a head yeah, and right. negotiate it. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. I think that's all my core questions. I'd like to finish with one last question that I do with everyone. If you're going to give a couple of tips, what does it take to be successful to be in the same shoes as you for someone that's staying off? So you mentioned already definitely do probably residential what else yeah it depends on what stream you want to go and there's so many streams in commercial real estate when i say commercial that's very very much an umbrella so generally commercial real estate is broken down to asset classes so shopping centers or retail bulky goods industrial office office parks rural so look i went down this path of not knowing really what i wanted to do when i went to uni I liked the idea of business, loved business studies, I loved economics. So I thought, oh, I'll do a management bachelor business degree. In hindsight, was that time wasted? Probably not. I learned a lot. I learned how to write reports, which you don't really learn at school. I went back and did a master's. And it was a master's in property development, thinking one day I wanted to get in development myself. I think I've seen too many people go bust and and (laughs) lose everything from it. So definitely I I like, I tinker with residential property myself, but definitely won't become a property developer unless you've got very deep pockets. I would recommend there's two streams. Some people do the, the resi. Really, you learn the, the 101 of real estate. It's a tough, it's very tough to get your name out there and build market share. So I think it's a very good grounding from a from a canvassing perspective, sort of getting a feel for what real estate's really like. But I think there's a lot of people that just go to uni and do a, do a property degree, do a straight property degree, which is more around, look, it's really finance. It's it's a finance degree. Anything in the, in the institutional space is really finance related. A lot of the fund managers got finance degrees. You need to understand DCS, MPVs. You need to understand valuation methodology, how all that works. Doing resi, you don't really get that because the residential real estate pricing is very simplistic. It's what did this sell for? What did that sell for? Did that have a view? How many bedrooms? How many bathrooms? Whereas what space we deal in is very much it's funding, it's it's returns, it's you know, expected returns, IRs, all these other things that you need to understand. And and having done resi and not done a finance degree, you'd be clueless. You come in and go, well, what's that? How does that work? You know, you really need to understand the mechanics of how the trust think. So you're on the same wavelength. You understand what they're trying to achieve. A property degree, if you want to get into corporate real estate, would be a great grounding. Then the hardest thing is getting experience. So getting your foot in the door to some of the majors, they want determination. They want somebody who's hungry if you want to get in a sales role. But there's lots of other, you don't have to be in sales. You could be in property management. You know, you could go and be a valuer. There's, look, it's such a good industry and it's it's so fast paced. It's sometimes hard to stay up to date with what's going on in, in your markets you're working. But, or if you can go and get it, ideally, if you can get some sort of graduate job, that would be, so you get a feel for every aspect of some of the major firms. So valuation, some of them have residential arms. So you really get a plethora of every single asset class. And then you can come out going, oh, I actually like industrial. I actually like, retail um, or valuations that that's what i'd recommend if someone's going to start if you want to be a sales agent i think the resi is a really good grounding just because it's you, you learn how to negotiate you learn how to deal with people's emotions but resi you've got to be at it a long time to really make any money i suppose like any real estate but at, at the resi market you've got to build a name in that you're in Colorado, you've got to be in Colorado for three or four years and specialize in some maybe it's apartment sales or something to really build a name for yourself So maybe it's come in as an assistant agent or do a bit of property management, just learn a bit how to negotiate, learn the ropes, 
and then transition in a major. That would be a great way to start. And you really got to specialise. You do have to specialise. You can't be a generalist. And that's why we don't touch, there's no retail, really office industrial. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just touching on that sounds so broad. It's not just the one thing. There's so many opportunities. Like you said, if you don't really want to get into sales, there's other aspects of commercial real estate. Yeah. And not everyone's a salesperson. You know what I mean? I think you need to, you've got to be really hungry. Like I think a lot of it's, you've got to have a lot of drive. There's no one telling you every day, you've got to get up and make 20 canvas calls. You've got to do it yourself on your own back. You've got to you got to be hungry. You got to want to chase chase deals. You got to know how to close. Can't just you can't just drag a tenant on and, and not know how to actually go. Right? Do you want to lease this or not? And, and there's some hard conversations you got to have, but you learn over time. You get a bit of a backbone and learn to ask those hard questions and slowly chip away closing, knowing you're going to get to an outcome. But either path would work. That's one thing I didn't touch on. The biggest thing for me, getting out of resi, passionate about sailing, working weekends killed me. If you've got a young family, back in the day, I didn't have kids when I started, but Working on a Saturday when everyone else is out enjoying themselves was tough, really mm. hard to see. And sometimes Sundays. In the, in the German system, you also work Sundays. Obviously, you get two days off somewhere. But the great thing about what we do, it's Monday to Friday. Yes, I respond to emails at 10 o'clock at night. You don't switch off. They're to service clients. But at least you, you do know the weekend you can make plans, enjoy yourself. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Excellent. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Jen. Great insight. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It's been really good. I hope you found that episode with Ben enjoyable. I was truly fascinated by the insights that he shared about the real estate world, whether it was residential or commercial. The standout lesson for me is all about being self-motivated and resilient. To excel in this field, self-motivation is key. It's about pushing yourself to make those calls and meet those individuals who might shape your future opportunities, even if it's uncomfortable. Building and maintaining a strong, ongoing relationship are the fundamentals. Sometimes they pay off immediately, other times it's like a long-term investment, but nurturing them is critical. Resilience is equally essential. Rejections are part of the journey and bouncing back from the setbacks is non-negotiable. Managing multiple jobs and diversifying your opportunities is really important as it softens the impact of any setbacks. Well, I hope you found value in that episode, especially if you're aspiring to join the real estate world. And remember, make today a good news day.